This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab with your host, Greg Gazin. Episode 142, those virtual interview mistakes to avoid that he learned interviewing Zoom's head recruiter with our guest today, John Bowe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab. This is your host, Greg Gazin. As usual, we have another special guest today, John Bow. He's a speech trainer, an award-winning journalist and author of a brand new book called I Have Something to Say, Mastering the Art of Public Speaking in an Age of Disconnection. He has contributed to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, GQ, McSweeney's, The American Life, just to name a few. He was also a recent educational presenter at the Toastmasters International 2020 Virtual Convention. He was also interviewed on the Toastmasters podcast, the other podcast, with my co-host Ryan Levesque, and that's where I originally had met John. John Bow, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be able to talk to you again. Now, for our listeners who not only subscribe to Toastcaster, but also to the Toastmasters podcast, this will be a different podcast. And for those of you who don't subscribe to the Toastmasters podcast, here's an opportunity for you to listen to the podcast that was entitled, Aristotle Was a Toastmaster. It'll be a different podcast. Of course, the common thread will be about communication and presentation skills. Now, John had recently written an article for CNBC. Four mistakes to avoid in your next virtual job interview, but he had a unique opportunity to get that advice from Zoom's Phil Haynes. I think everyone's using Zoom these days. Phil is the head of global talent acquisition for Zoom, and he's interviewed thousands and thousands of people. So, John, tell me a little bit about how this article came about. Well, the article was originally going to be a survey of different heads of recruiting and HR people talking about what they'd noticed during COVID, how they were conducting virtual interviews, and what kinds of mistakes they noticed people making. So I wanted to ask them, what's working for you? And what what would you advise job seekers to avoid? And so I talked to the head of Nestle's recruiting. I talked to some Silicon Valley startups. I talked to people who were looking for salespeople, for engineers, different kinds of people. And really learned this whole gamut of approaches to virtual interviews that seemed to be working for people. Was there a common thread? The common thread was make sure your lighting is good. <laughs> no, let me say <laughs> let me say that again. There were actually a few common threads. One of the most surprising was that while we are all now newly paranoid about our baby walking naked in the background or our dog taking a poop or things like that. Those kind of spontaneous weird things that happen now that we're all at home, they ended up not being a problem. People kind of seem to like that and respect it and really welcome it. It just didn't seem to torpedo an interview or embarrass the person so badly that like, oops, interview over. I mean, is there a threshold? People can say, well, it's, this is me. This is who I am in my, what's the term I would be looking for in my natural habitat? Is there a limit? <laughs> Was there any mention of that in your discussions with these recruiters? I never heard a single recruiter say, oh, it was a great interview, except for that weird thing that happened behind you on screen that you weren't aware of. So it seemed like that unplanned, spontaneous stuff was never as much of a problem as we all worry it might be. 
Did they mention anything to the fact that perhaps they might have been judged on how the interruptions were handled? That's a good point. No one, no one said that, but I'm sure that for a smart recruiter, that would factor in. One thing I thought of is that we're all focused on performance during a job interview. And it didn't really occur to me until I wrote the piece that the job interviewer, the interviewer is writing down notes while you're talking. At the end of it all, apart from your performance, it's these notes where your performance is really going to live because they're going to interview a bunch of people and then look at the notes. So if your performance is great and you're really lively and enthusiastic and seem like a great person, but the notes don't really convey any sense of your problem-solving skills, guess what? That was a meaningless interview. Mm, yeah, interesting. I was thinking initially when we were talking about some of the some of the distractions, for me, if I was interviewing someone, I would be thinking about how they handled it. Because I still remember where... I read about or heard about a lady who had said to the recruiters or the interviewers, I have to postpone this because I need to take care of my child, need to take care of my baby. Whereas I saw on another one where the individual, I think it might've even been a radio broadcaster or TV broadcaster that actually pushed their child or pushed the individual out of the way in, in anger. And for me, I'd be thinking, okay, so how would they handle the situation if conflict arose in the workplace? What's your thought on that? Well, again, think of what that looks like on the recruiter's notes file. So some mm-hmm. of those, I mean, I'm sure if I were a recruiter and I saw somebody push their child, that's it. I <laughs> Whatever I put in my notes, I don't care. Like, I'm not going to hire that person. But if it were something where they solved a problem in a smart way or a likable way or something, it would still be hard to get that in the notes and say, great, let's hire that person for the head of procurement. Mm-hmm. It's too, it's too informal. You know what I mean? The, the translating the one situation to the other, it might work, but I bet you most times it doesn't make it into the notes. Now, while John's article focuses on job interviews, I thought that this would be really of interest to our audience because many of these tips and techniques will not only apply to job interviews, but they can also apply to people who are conducting business. Perhaps you're doing a pitch to investors, or perhaps you're going to be interviewing suppliers. So a lot of the things that a lot of the things that John had written about in his article is very, very appropriate for all audiences. What are some of the other things that you discussed? There were four main points. I think I'm not sure if you touched upon one or you sort of crossed over into a couple of the others. Well, in the end, the interview focused down to Phil Haynes, the head of recruiting for Zoom, partly just because we couldn't resist the irony factor that even at Zoom, everything is happening on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> and even at Zoom... You know, they've got to struggle with the same stuff as the rest of us about having everything be virtual now. So one of the things he said was that if you're doing a virtual interview, don't think you can get away with stuff that you couldn't get away with in real life. Okay. If you're fidgeting or if you're checking your phone or something like that, which you would never, never, never do if you were sitting at a table with someone, don't think that you can do it just because you're on a Zoom interview. Right. Even though it's out of the way, you can tell if someone's looking, even though it's under the table and below the camera, you can sort of tell. Oh, you can totally tell. And it's it's unforgivable. And I think everybody's become a little bit neurotic sitting at home and doing everything with our gadgets all the time. True. It's pretty easy. I mean, my phone is right here now. It's tempting if I see something lighting up to look at it. But if we were on video and not just on audio, that would be insanely rude for me to do that. And difficult to edit out. (laughs) And difficult to edit out, exactly. (laughs) 
Oh, cool. Tell me more. Tell me more. Well, he had some other things to say, too, which was one of the things was about eye contact, right? We all have gotten really used to looking at each other's picture on the screen instead of the camera, which means that we've gotten really used to everybody looking slightly crazy. And we can live with it. But if you're doing something that really counts, where you really want to connect to people and show them your best, best, best self and not seem slightly crazy, you have to look at the camera. (laughs) And so Haynes said something interesting. He said, we don't expect people to just stare only at the camera, but we do expect them to be aware of that dynamic. And at least he didn't say pay homage to it, but but just to show from time to time that you're aware of that. And again, he didn't say this, but his point was that on some deeper level, we want to know that people are aware and socially kind of clued into this stuff, even if it's a little bit weird to learn how to do it. Did he give you any tips in terms of being able to maintain that proper visual or to have a balance between looking at the camera and looking at the screen? He did. And I have one of my own, too, which I I think is even more fun. So his tip was that you rearrange the Hollywood squares of a Zoom meeting or any other online platform (laughs) and put the person who you're looking at at least at the top of your screen closest to where your camera is and the smaller the differential between what you're looking at and where the camera is the less crazy you look i think that's good we all want to look a little bit less crazy (laughs) as uncrazy as we can and then my own special john bow tip is when i did my toastmasters educational session I really didn't want to forget that because it is so easy to do. And I <laughs> I Googled an image search for Toastmasters audiences, printed out a picture of it, and I cut a little hole in it and I pasted it over my camera hole. <laughs> you know, 90% of your brain knows that this is a dumb trick. And yet there's that 10% that's willing to go with it. And I do think that if I'm staring at a camera hole, it's hard for me to get motivated And if I'm staring at this paper printout in black and white of what looks like human faces, there's some reptile part of my brain that does light up a little bit from that. And I behave more warmly looking at a thing that looks like a person. It's totally dumb. (laughs) I have heard all kinds of things. I've heard people putting pictures. I've heard people putting a big arrow saying, look here, dummy. Judy Carter had said to me, we interviewed Judy Carter on an episode of the Toastmasters podcast. She's a comedian, she's a speaking coach, and she's absolutely hilarious. She said she has no problem, but one of the piece of advice that she offered was when you're ready to deliver the punchline, that main word is make sure that you're looking directly in into the camera. I also think sometimes we find that if our picture is on the screen, we'll be looking at ourselves. I mean, not because we're vain, but because we're concerned that we're not looking foolish. I don't know about you. <laughs> that was another one of Phil Haynes' tips was also to just get rid of yourself on screen because we can all tell when someone's looking at themselves and fussing with their hair, fussing with their image and their framing and everything like that. And it's annoying and everyone can tell. If you can't get yourself off the screen, just put a post-it note over it. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have gone as far as getting an external camera because some people will have the built-in camera on their laptop and they'll be restricted in terms of what's visible and what's visual and they'll actually go out and get a secondary one so for example if someone has let's say they're using a dual monitor they're using their laptop and a monitor and they want to be looking at the larger monitor there's no 
camera on there. So they'll get an external one and, and put it on there. And that, that can be pretty helpful, especially if someone is going to be doing this on a regular basis or if you're presenting professionally. Oh, this is fascinating. So what else did you learn from Phil Haynes? One of the surprising things that he told me was that in many ways, virtual interviews are yielding a kind of more real version of the job applicant. So he said, yes, in many ways, this video medium prevents certain kinds of warmth from coming through and certain kinds of spontaneity. But he said, in a lot of other ways, we get the real person because they don't have to dress up and bring their briefcase and come in with this whole office persona. There's some other more spontaneous part of them that's coming out and it allows us to ask better questions and get better answers and get to the real person in a way that we don't when we are playing the roles we play in normal life. And that to me was a total surprise. And it was, you know, everybody's complaining about the online lifestyle and the pandemic, but this was a little bit of a silver lining there. He said that they were actually hiring better people than they normally did because the process was working better. Really? So a lot of what we've been talking about is the environment, the the natural habitat that the recruiters can find people in. But in the article, you had mentioned about the importance at this time about not being boring, about making sure that the content of your answers are important. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, I think... After you have satisfied all of the requirements of the virtual job interview, and by that I mean having a decent camera placement and lighting and a good background and good microphone, wearing something that isn't ridiculous, there's still, it comes down to the content of what you're saying. And I think here's where it comes back into my area of expertise. This is a form of public speaking. And like all public speaking, you need to give the audience what they want and what they can use and what they need. And I think that what Haynes and other recruiters I spoke with all said is that you need to have good answers. You can't be boring. You need to show us how you solve problems. A job interviewee is not just to be really enthusiastic and peppy and convey what a great, smiley, nice person you are. You really need to think in advance about your specific skills and then come up with stories that make that come alive. There was a woman I was working with who was just beginning to do virtual job interviews and she had to actually make a video of herself to send in. And it was nightmarish for her because she didn't have a lot of on-camera experience and it felt weird for her to talk to herself for a few minutes at a time, as I think it does for most people. And she was giving these very canned answers about how I am a qualified candidate and blah, blah, blah. I asked her to think about what that must be like to be a recruiter and get videos like that all day long and how boring that must be. I said, you got to amuse this person and make them get a sense of you as a person and also just like liven their life up a little bit. So I got her to think about different jobs she'd had where she got really, really pissed off at someone or where things just went foobar and went off the rails and it was a total mess and describe the mess and tell it in a funny way that reflects how you probably felt when things were going crazy. Or let's think of the person you hated most, the client or the coworker, and think about how you dealt with it. So for a lot of these stories, it really does come back to just like any kind of drama. What's the funniest or worst thing that ever happened to you? Yeah. Let's frame it around that instead of this generic recitation of your traits, which of course don't convey anything. 
you know, it makes sense that people will be so tense and uptight because it's going to be in an environment that they're not comfortable with that all of a sudden they forget all of the basics, all of the things that they have to do to get the job and all the things that they would be doing when they're in the interview. But this online process, this Zoom actually has some opportunities for them because even if someone doesn't subscribe to a Zoom package, you can get Zoom for free. You can use it for, I think, 40 minutes at a time or unlimited if it's just yourself, record it and play it back. The other thing that just popped into my mind as I got temporarily distracted is that you have an opportunity if you're telling a story to bring props into it. So let's say there's you're telling a story about a product that you developed or something that you did at another company and you happen to have that product right in front of you, you could actually show that on the screen. So the little bit of a crisis with the fact that you have to do this virtually can also present some opportunities. I agree, absolutely. I think that the silver lining with the whole virtual interviewing process is you have much more time to prepare than you would in real life. I think you have time to kind of write your stories out in advance. You have time to practice them in front of the camera. And as painful as that is, you know, that's the way to get ready for it. What was the biggest takeaway from the interviews for yourself that you learned that you say, I have to do this differently, or here's something that I really need to do from now on? It's the same lesson every single time, as painful as it is. Practice, 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 practice. You just can't practice enough. And, you know, I think putting yourself in the in the exact situation you're going to be when you do the job interview and getting your lights right and getting the technical stuff set up so that you're not improvising or changing things around at the last moment, which is going to rattle you. I think when you prepare your stories, you want to practice telling the story a few times and have the dates ready and make sure that it's not too long. Make sure that you're not going to ramble. Make sure that If you have people who will listen to your story, make sure that they get it. Make sure that you're making sense. And if you do that stuff, it's going to show when it's time for the job interview. I mean, I observed those things in my own experience. And I also looked at 18,000 articles talking about things that we all need to learn how to do. Just out of curiosity, are are there any other perhaps quick tips that you could offer? Because obviously... The list is virtually unlimited, but are there a couple that perhaps that stick out with you? The best tips I can give are the most old-fashioned tips in public speaking. Know your audience and prepare. If you prepare what you're going to, I mean, like, like any kind of public speaking, there's knowledge and then there's the ability to communicate that knowledge. So know what it is that you're trying to convey. You want to convey to them that you are the best person to solve their particular problems. And you want to come up with stories that convey that ability, and then you want to practice telling those stories. It's not just enough to have them. You have to be good at talking about them. And by the way, of course, with any kind of a Zoom interview, you want to be wearing the right clothing, which is basically dark, solid colors. Don't wear stripes because it looks weird on the video. Light colors also can look weird on video. And maybe not green if you're using a green screen. (laughs) And maybe not green if you're using a green screen. And then don't have a weird sign on or handle. If you have a goofy, goofy sign on that you use with your friends from elementary school, that might not be the best one for a professional situation. <laughs> if, if you're using someone else's Zoom account. So, no, I'm not uh, Paul McCartney or uh, David Bowie. <laughs> yeah, right. So, John, if people want to get a hold of you, they want to find a little bit more about you. Perhaps they might even be interested in your brand new book. How can they do all that? You can always find me at 
my website, johnfbo.com. That's J-O-H-N-F as in Frank, B as in boy, O-W-E.com. And from there, there are links to anything you might want to find out about the book or how I teach public speaking. Awesome. And we'll also put links in the show notes to the article and to the other podcast, the Toastmasters podcast. John F. Bo, it's been an absolute pleasure. And just for the record, this is all audio. So I have no idea what you're I not have no <laughs> I have no idea what's in your background. I have no idea what's distracting you. And I have to admit I did glance once at my phone because there was someone who was being persistent. My humblest apologies, but thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Greg. And my gratitude is eternal that you can't see what's behind me right now. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. A new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com.